learning both Latin and then later Greek, I was getting access to these texts which were about things that were horrible and that we were allowed to recognize how horrible it was. Early on in, my, in, in Latin class, we read a near book too. And I just remember reading over and over and over the description of the death of Priam and how horrible it is and the, the scene of being dragged to the altar by the hair and being chopped up and just this, the sense of a, a total civilization in, in, in collapse, in chaos. And it seemed to me liberating that I, 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 was, I felt silenced constantly, both at home and in school. I felt like I couldn't speak. But this text was, was saying something about how horrible things could be and that I wanted to be able to say something like that. And I didn't have a voice for it, but Virgil seemed to have a voice for it. This is the Mirror of Antiquity, where we see ourselves in the study of the ancient world. I'm Curtis Dozier. When I was eight years old, I was in an elementary school version of the Odyssey, which my wonderful teachers had very creatively decided to put on. Um, and I got to play the goddess Athena. And we got to gouge out the headmaster's papier mache eye, and I got to pretend to be bossing everyone else around. I think partly because I got to play the goddess, who seemed like the most powerful character, and also because the most powerful adult within the school world was powerless at the hands of the kids. I was aware of it as a story about um, the powerless becoming more powerful and the, the powerful becoming less powerful. And certainly as a, as a kid, I wasn't necessarily thinking in any particularly elevated terms. I thought it was a fun story. I thought it was fun to dress up. I also certainly felt that I was less lonely when I was pretending to be somebody else and that I was less um, lost when I was immersed in a story that was about a completely different kind of world. I was a new kid in, at school. I was very uncomfortable among these other kids um, and I was also very uncomfortable at home in the family. I was uncomfortable just in my own skin. I could sort of tell this was a story about being at home, being uncomfortable with home, being lost and being uncomfortable being lost. And the story, the play, once we had our masks and our costumes on, we, we could be articulating discomfort rather than being uncomfortable. So there could be a, a relationship with the things we found difficult, or at least the things I found difficult. Today on The Mirror of Antiquity, we hear from Emily Wilson who in 2017 became the first woman to publish a translation of Homer's Odyssey into English. Her translation was a giant critical success. It was named one of the 100 notable books of 2018 by the New York Times and catapulted her to a level of fame most classical scholars don't even dream of, with reviews and coverage in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Guardian, National Public Radio, and many others. She was already known as a versatile translator before she became famous for her translation of the Odyssey. She has translated Greek tragedies by Euripides and the Roman philosopher Seneca. But within the field of classical studies, she is also known for something else, for her probing investigations into some of the most iconic figures of classical antiquity, the mythological hero Hercules, for example, or the philosophers Socrates and Seneca. I've linked all of her books on mirrorofantiquity.com, and they're worth a look because these aren't your typical biographies of great men of the classical world. You just heard her say that playing Athena as a child in a stage version of the Odyssey showed her that classical texts could be a site for articulating discomfort. All her work is marked by a refusal to be comfortable with the usual narratives about Greco-Roman antiquity. What sets Wilson's work apart is the way she resists any impulse to idolize the figures she writes about. 
but challenges us to see the parts of them that aren't so attractive, the parts of them that don't fit easily into the common idea that classical thought should be admired, the parts of them that too often get left out or minimized when we set the ancient world on a pedestal. Her translation of the Odyssey is many things, but it can also be seen as a continuation of the approach that was already there in her earlier books. But it would be a mistake to think that what she's saying is anything so simplistic as that we shouldn't idolize people we used to idolize. Wilson's point is that ancient texts themselves contain and acknowledge much more ambivalence about these figures than is often recognized. And that it is in this ambivalence, this recognition of the human limits of heroism, that the true value of the Greco-Roman past resides as a means of forcing us to question our own assumptions about what makes a culture, a historical period, and even a human life valuable. Welcome. The kids' adaptations focus very much on the story of the wanderings and the story of poor Odysseus was lost, encountered some scary monsters, but luckily he managed to get home, kill the bad guys, and that was okay. So that doesn't allow one to have any space between you and the main character. There are certain aspects of Odysseus that it's easy for me to identify with. Um, it's easy for me to think my way inside the... We've talked about shyness and the desire for mastery and power. That, that, seemed, that, that nexus between desire to hide oneself and desire to reveal oneself is essential to the depiction of Odysseus in the Odyssey. That's part of what his polytropia is, is that he's sometimes he's on the island of Calypso being hidden, sometimes he wants to reveal himself, sometimes he's nobody, somebody, he's some, sometimes he's somebody. So that, that fluctuation between wanting to be nobody, wanting to be somebody is easy for me to identify with. I guess I would say that I've become much more woke as a feminist, I've become much more aware of the implicit um, double consciousness or multiple consciousness that comes with identifying with male protagonists as a reader. And I, I think I've always had that, but I, I haven't been always as aware of it as I grew to be over the years. Let's take the Odyssey. Reading the Odyssey it invites you to see, see the world through the eyes of, of a male elite, elite protagonist. The desire then to assert myself as a man in a man's world is, of course, less easy for me to, in a simple way, identify with. Um, the desire to um, lay claim to my objectified wife and all my objectified slaves is, again, less easy for me to you know, simply identify with. It's also the ways that he's violent and a slave owner and all the other things that I hesitate about. I think the poem itself allows one to hesitate. I think there is space for that hesitation and that discomfort within the poem to a fairly large extent. Um, but I, th I think the kids' adaptations that I read as a child don't really give you nearly as much space as I hope my translation does, and I, as, I, as I think the Greek text does. So much of the coverage of Wilson's translation has focused on the way she translated the description of Odysseus that appears in the first line of the poem. The Greek adjective that Homer uses, polutropos, combines the idea of multiplicity with a metaphor of turning. 
In antiquity, it was disputed whether this refers to Odysseus's many journeys or to his cunning, his mind of many turns. English translators have translated this description with the man of many ways, the cunning hero, the wanderer, or the man of twists and turns. Wilson translated it, a complicated man. This is no less correct a translation than earlier writers, who, if anything, have injected into the word an assumption of admiration. Wilson's refusal simply to idolize, to admire, in the very first line, sets the tone for a translation that on every page embraces the ways the text leaves open the question of whether Odysseus is worthy of the term hero, and of what kind of a hero he really is. She's not necessarily against Odysseus. She just wants us to see him for who he is presented to be. And she wants us to see all the other people who appear in the poem, especially the women, as fully as we see him. Wilson ends her introduction to her translation with the image of a stranger coming to your house. It is, of course, a scene that is played out many times in the Odyssey itself. Wilson invites her reader to let in this stranger, the Odysseus of her translation, to feed him and then wait without asking questions. He will tell his story, she writes. Listen carefully. It may not be as you expect. I wanted in the depiction of Odysseus not to not to present him as a villain, but also not to idealize and to present all the multifacetedness of this very much multifaceted character. I don't think the first line should be just about Odysseus. That's part of why I use the word complicated, and that's also part of where I've been trying to go in terms of the narrative. Polytropos is a word that uh, that's applied to situations as well as to people, and that's partly why I wanted to have the the first line be saying something programmatic about this is a kind of poem which is going to invite a complicated reading, a complicated response. He's certainly presented as both very violent and very avaricious, very much keen on acquiring power and honor and possessions for himself. And I mean, you could say that's all just part of what a heros does. That's part of what a warrior is. Um, but I think the fact that the poem has so many characters who are not like that also gives you space to think about, even within archaic culture, what kind of character is this? He's different from Achilles, who's, who hates like Hell's Gate, the man who says one thing and holds another in his heart. Odysseus is constantly lying, cheating his way to his own ends. The Odyssey seems preoccupied by the fact that Odysseus is a leader of men who comes back with precisely zero men. What the poem tells us is that this is a poem about his nostos, but let's focus on the nostoi of all those who didn't get it, who didn't get to go home. He's a leader, all of whose men perish under his leadership. Um, he's constantly absent when they need him. He's constantly taking naps when they need him. He threatens to chop off their heads if they try and object to what he's doing. Um, he presents his own Mertis, his own cleverness, as if it were some kind of moral quality. I think the narrative allows us to question to what extent is it. Does, is a clever person better than anybody else, better than those who are nepioi or foolish? That seems to me a, a question the poem is asking. It then also comes back as the, one of the primary focuses of the final sequence in Book 24, where we hear the voice of Antinous's father saying, not just that you killed my son, but you took all those young men off to Troy and none of them came back. You seem to have a pattern of 
letting everybody under your care die. So the poem seems to be at least flagging that as an issue. And the the question about um, how can he be multiple and one at the same time? I think the poem is also sort of exploring are there issues with how many lies he tells, are there issues with how many people he, he is wanting to be? Usually being one is thought to be more heroic or more... Um, I mean, I think the, the poem is, is interested in multiple different characters who are multiple, right? I mean, the, the Odysseus isn't the only one who's many. Calypso and Circe and Athena and Helen are also many. There are much more echoes between Odysseus and all these other female characters in the poem than there are between Odysseus and... The poem, I think, is much less interested in setting Odysseus alongside other male characters. In contrast to the Iliad, where there's constantly this comparing of different male heroes. In terms of mental qualities, it's Helen who has much more in common with Odysseus. Disguise and cleverness. Well, the Iliad has far fewer um, very heroic or semi-divine or divine female characters, and it has much more focus on... Um, who is the best of the Achaeans? What does it mean to be the best warrior on the battlefield? Whereas the Odyssey has much more interest in what does it mean to be the best, most most socially powerful character in the world of stratagems and wiles and fiction telling and survival. And that that question about who is who is best at um, the complex journey of survival and of, and of going on living, it seems as if some of the possible candidates for that position are female characters. I mean, I guess we have the idea of the Homeric poems as being ultra-masculine. Um, the Odyssey, I think, isn't particularly ultra-masculine in the sense that the, many of its most interesting and diverse characters aren't male. For a long time, studying antiquity meant studying the lives and writings and ideas of men. Almost all the texts are by them, after all, and almost all the people studying antiquity as professionals were men, too. However, when you take the time to look at the ways women are represented in these texts, you find interesting things. You find that Odysseus has more in common with Helen than anyone else in the poem, for example. And you see Odysseus in a new light. Ten years before she published her translation, Wilson published a book about the Greek philosopher Socrates and many of the ways his life has been talked about throughout the 2,500 or so years since his followers, especially Plato, first wrote about him. Probably even more than Odysseus, we tend to think of him as an admirable figure, committed to truth, an outspoken critic of the corruption of his time, yet aware of the limits of his own knowledge, willing to die rather than be untrue to himself. And yet there's more in the sources about him than that conventional account gives. Did you know he had a wife? Did you know Plato wrote about her? In the same way, I wanted to present all the multifacetedness of Socrates and showing how um, at different moments in history, different aspects of these different Socrateses have become culturally prominent. I think in our culture, we have this sort of dominant idea of Socrates as the intellectual martyr and a, a good guy and on the right side of history because um, he was a Democrat and democracy encourages free speech and he was an intellectual and he must, must have cared about truth and ethics. And I think those, <laughs> those perceptions are problematic and don't really fit either the, the multiple ancient texts or the multiplicity of 
of other responses to this character through history. But I think it, just making sure that when we read Plato, we haven't sort of decided ahead of time we're going to agree with everything Socrates says, or even that Plato's going to agree with everything Socrates says. That seems to me really important. And that we should be focused not just on Plato is idealizing Socrates, but on showing where where that idealization might might or might not work, even from the narrative's own perspectives, let alone from whatever later cultural cultural perspectives we might want to bring to bear on it, including our our cultural moment, but then also including other moments in cultural history. So Plato's Socrates presents himself in the Phaedo as having the ideal life in which he gets to talk about philosophy all day long and gets to die convinced that um, that the soul is immortal. Um, we have in, in that text this sort of heartbreaking account of him saying goodbye to his wife and young sons and they're crying and he dismissive, dismissively um, makes sure that they get taken out of the, out of the room. Um, let somebody take the, take the women out because there has to be no room for lamentation in the the world of men. So I think one thing that that one has to emphasize about the Socratic ideal is that it's figured as a very masculine ideal. It's figured as this is for the the male hero who's going to be able to the male elite hero who's going to be able to be in absolute control of everything at all times. And that's because you have the right kind of psuche, the right kind of soul, which is going to allow for correct control at all times. And it's supposedly a universal human trait where you're allowed to, where you're able to rise above all circumstances by being stoical in a modern sense or by having complete control over your own reactions to anything that may happen to you. But at the same time, it's figured as something which is possible only for a tiny, um, tiny little demographic. It's not possible unless you're an elite man who has the time to blather on about philosophy all day long. The rest of us have to live a life which is being presented as um, not even fully human, right? Because you're not you're, you're not going to be able to um, fully be um, in touch with the the higher realities of the forms and the souls and virtue. You're going to be wailing and weeping when your husband dies, and you're going to go home and care for the kids. That's entirely devalued. It's not hard to see an analogy to this point about Plato's representation of Socrates in Homer's representation of Odysseus. The poem tells the story of a man who travels the world and has many adventures before coming home. But it also devotes a lot of space to those who don't get to do that, to the men who die at sea, and to the women who never left, especially to Odysseus's wife Penelope, who while Odysseus is away must tend what in Greek is called the oikos, the household, raise their son, and somehow deal with the house full of suitors who, assuming that Odysseus has died, have come to pressure her into marrying one of them so that they can rule the island. So one point of Wilson's work is to call attention to what our idealization of these figures from antiquity leaves out. But the other part is to point out that many ancient writers were not that interested in idealized versions of life, but rather in what kinds of life one can live when such idealization becomes impossible. This perspective informs her reading of two plays that she translated about the mythological hero Heracles, one by the Greek tragic poet Euripides and one by the Roman playwright and philosopher Seneca. Of Seneca's portrayal of Heracles, she writes that as a hero, 
he's less like Superman with his comforting Clark Kent persona than Batman or Spider-Man, a hero who can hardly bear to take off his mask for fear of what it might reveal. I read in my first book quite a lot about both Euripides' version of the Heracles myth and also Seneca's dramatic version of the myth and how each of those plays um, show the dark side of the always-in-control hero who can perform these great deeds of virtue. He's this um, model of doing great deeds to benefit mankind by killing all the monsters in the world. Um, but of course, the, the myth then tells of how he got back home and in a fit of madness slaughtered his own wife and his own children and then wakes up and realizes what he's done and then has to try and figure out can he go on living knowing what he's done and knowing that he's this tainted hero. Um, so so both the Euripides tragic version of that and then in a different way the, the Senecan version are sort of grappling with is it even worth it if your masculinity and your virtue and, and your... Um, your being above circumstance have been so radically compromised. Is there any worthwhile life that can happen after that? And I think both those plays very powerfully say yes, that say that there is there's something wrong with the way Her- Heracles figures the only value of life before he commits this terrible outrage. He, he has this idea that it's only worthwhile to be alive at all if he's constantly the boss, constantly in control, constantly the person that everybody looks up to as the great celebrity. Once he's no longer any of those things, he then has this terrible choice of, can I, is there some other meaningful life that's possible? There's this fantasy of being um, a solitary figure who's in control in oneself. And that, that I think p- part of what um, points against that in each of these texts is that community matters, maybe politics matters, certainly family or household or the larger nexus of relationships are left out by the ideal of always being alone in control in yourself. In the Odyssey, Penelope is, has, is surrounded by a community of suitors and her community is defined by the people around her, not in a good way, but it's not that she can send them away. She has no choice about what community she's in. To some extent, she could choose to be in a different community by choosing to marry one of the suitors and then either redefine the oikos where she is or create some other kind of oikos or be part of her husband creating some other kind of oikos. But it's a, it's a community which is not fully defined by, by her, by her choices. And I think that's the case you know, for most of us, is that our community is not fully defined by whatever we want our community to be. And Euripides is very good on this, but Homer is good on this too. Life is unpredictable and, you, and it's not always entirely up to you what it's going to be like. And it can be messy and confusing doesn't always make complete sense. It's not always whatever you think it's going to be. You can't actually control other people, even if you think you can control your own mind. And you may, may not even be able to do that. Of course, not everyone in antiquity was so critical of heroism. Whole schools of philosophical thought were devoted to precisely the question of determining what the ideal life looked like. And they often turned to these mythological and even historical figures for help producing their own heavily idealized versions of them. Versions which, in some cases, have been more influential than the literary representations they were based on. The Stoics were interested in the ideal of the 
the wise person and with, with wise meaning something that that corresponds not just to being smart about math but also um, being smart about ethical life justice and they were certainly looking back in both earlier myth and earlier literature for figures who might um, represent this ideal of both smartness and being above circumstances so Hercules is an important hero for the Stoics, but then Odysseus is also an important hero for the Stoics, as is Socrates, of course. Socrates as the one who can keep on philosophizing even right before death. Socrates is the person who's so immune to worrying about his physical mortality that he's focused on just on proving the, the, the truth about philosophy, even with his dying breath. I wrote a piece for a... I'm not sure if it's a blog called The Daily Stoic. That was I ended up talking a little bit about how how much the Stoics were interested in Odysseus. There's just a lot of overlap, I think, between these figures. I mean, a lot of overlap in terms of the um, the particular preoccupations with um, is the best life the life of the mind. There's, there's a possible reading of the Odyssey that's about Odysseus as the the human being who's managed to free himself from circumstances. You might think that time and 20 years and going through war and being shipwrecked multiple times and being trapped and all these things would um, disturb his equilibrium. But no, look at look how he manages with only a little bit of touching up from the goddess to be exactly the same as he was 20 years ago. Circumstances have not changed him or touched him whatsoever. So it seems like there's at least a, a reading of the Odyssey where it's about this juxtaposition between um, being subject to circumstance and fortuna and precarity which is what happens for everybody else, or there's the single unique individual who's able to free himself from all of that. And that, that individual is, of course, the prototype for the Stoic sage. So I, I would think I was wrestling to some extent with the fakeness of that. And if we want to understand human beings, then we need to understand the, the fantasies and fakeness that they are prone to, to construct and to, to inhabit. For Wilson, perhaps no ancient figure embodies the contradictions that arise from the fantasy of an ideal life more than Seneca. Seneca was a, a Roman philosopher, writer, dramatist who lived um, in the first century, born roughly at the same time as Jesus, but then he lived much longer because he, he wasn't forced to kill himself until he was 65 years old. Um, so he was, he was first the tutor to Nero, the, who then became the emperor, and then the speechwriter and partly political advisor to Nero. And eventually he fell out of favor with, with Nero and was forced to kill himself. He was a prolific writer who wrote both wonderfully gory tragedies, which I did some translations of, and also a lot of different kinds of essays, many of them promoting different aspects of Stoicism. He's constantly presenting himself as writing about life and how one should live it. And so little of what he says about life and how one should live it seems to fit with what we know about his life as he lived it. There are moments in Seneca where there seems to be this um, pretty sharp contrast between what we can reconstruct about what he actually do and what he says one should do. 
I mean, for instance, that he seems to have been collusive in the murder of Agrippina, Nero's mother, who was his main benefactor. And then more or less at the same time, he's writing, it's very important to be grateful to one's benefactors and, of course, be always so nice to them because they've done so many good things for us. Of course, dear Nero in De Clementia, he's, he, he writes about how wonderful Nero is and his hands so completely unstained by any possible blood. And he's writing this right after the murder of Britannicus, which, again, he may have been collusive in. So the gap between rhetoric and the construction of life and whatever was actually going on, I think, is interesting. And it's, it's interesting more than just, yes, he was a hypocrite, blah, blah. I think that's a little bit boring. But the... Um, the fantasy, I think, is interesting in itself, and the, the literary construction of the ideal is interesting in itself. So I'm interested in the rhetorical ploys that construct a, an imagined version of an idealised life and trying to tease out how does the rhetoric itself work to, um, to, to hide itself as well as to display itself. And I think one, it helps one see how much it's the construction in cases where, as in the case of Seneca, it's clear that it doesn't map neatly onto actual action. That there's this literary construction of um, what the ideal life would be like, which is then constantly coming up against what life is like. I think if you turn to the plays of Seneca after reading Greek tragedy, um, some people are sort of shocked by how melodramatic it is, how much there's a a sense of um, almost eroticized uh, violence. That there's a that you're supposed to be wallowing in um, both actual physical violence, um, penetration of the body, deconstruction of the body, ripping apart of the body, and also ripping apart of the self. There's a real preoccupation with um, whether each of these overreaching hero characters can go further and be nastier and nastier and nastier than anybody in the whole of the mythological tradition has ever been before, um, and then being destroyed in that process and destroying their whole community in that process too. And yet in the in the prose, we have this very artful and you know, rhetorically excessive account of how we can deal with it all, we can, we can control it all. The philosophical letters are acknowledging the dangers of destructive passion, but they're, they're constantly saying um, over and over and over in more and more elaborate ways, you can contain this if you have virtue um, if you have stoic virtues, then you can keep it all under control. If you let anger loose, then it's going to destroy whole cities. But we we have the key to, to solving this. If you can just keep training yourself, practice every day, walk on it every day, you can get closer and closer and closer to the ideal of stoic calm. There's a completely different way of imagining how, how constrainable is passion. How much can we be in control of the chaos? Um, how much can we avoid all the horrible things that, that happen. And the tragedies don't seem to suggest there's any possibility of doing that. Ancient writers are so often held up as a source of wisdom, as having discovered eternal truths about life that the rest of us, mere mortals, can learn from. Wilson's approach pulls the rug out from under that fantasy by giving us a much more complicated view of these people who supposedly had it all figured out but are signaling to us, as Wilson chose, that they don't. But this doesn't mean we can't learn something valuable from ancient texts. In fact, maybe we can find something much more valuable than an image of the kind of enlightened life we think we're supposed to be living. 
I think it's valuable to recognize that life is unpredictable and we are not individuals. The value of that recognition is both that it's true, and I think that, that in itself is useful, and also that it's a check against egotism. I mean, it's a check against the, the idea that we can think of ourselves as far more powerful, and then that will lead to the abuse of power, more powerful than we are. And then that encourages us to, to abuse other people on, in, with the deluded idea that we have some rightness. I think that's a risk for for any human being. I mean, even if we only have a teeny sphere of power, we could be tempted to abuse it. it don't, you don't have to be a president to abuse power. The texts are presenting this complex and contradictory vision of what it means to be at the top of the social hierarchy. That in, in each each case, I mean, each of these sets of texts, whether we include the Homeric poems or the work of Plato or the, the works of Seneca we can, or the works of tragedy that we've also touched on, that we can see these, these texts sort of focusing on um, the, the unstable position of elite individuals and that in each case there are these, um, there's these literary constructions both of the fantasy of being in some way or other set apart from other people but then also how that position is problematic and these literary narratives are showing you what's problematic about that. I think if you approach the study of classics thinking I'm just going to have an a totally immersed, um, I'm, I'm not going to have any distance between myself and the object of study. That's all, that's a, and then you think I'm just going to totally relate to all these elite slave owners and think that they are me and I can feel good about myself because they obviously feel good about themselves. That I think is bogus. How good do they feel about themselves? If you look closely at the texts, you can see how there's all these cracks and fissures in how they're, they're defining their own cultural identities. You can see all these gaps, which I think are gaps which are sites of discomfort, sites of um, critical analysis, and therefore sites of humility and of the right kinds of questions. It can be conducive to um, both individual humility and humility on a sort of cultural level of realizing that modernity isn't all there is, as well as realizing I'm not all there is. I mean, I think the fact that classical antiquity is so different and so alien from our culture, as well as relatable, that can be conducive to this awareness of real diversity, which then can sort of make us realize we're not necessarily the center of everything, even in our own communities, let alone in the grand scope of history. I mean, I think the, think the most important thing is just to have this sort of questioning, including self-questioning approach both to antiquity and to one's own life, which, which doesn't involve thinking, I've already got all the answers because I learned Latin. It involves the opposite of that, I mean, the, of, of sort of thinking that the study of Latin and Greek and of antiquity is going to keep encouraging me to get better questions, including about my own society and my own life and about these complex texts and this alien set of cultures. Both ancient Greece and ancient Rome have often been presented as these are the ideals of humanity. So once you can show even these ideals of humanity, look at, look at what's... Um, Look at what's problematic, look at, look at the questions, look at the, the discomforts and fissures and tensions within these cultures. If even these idealized cultures have all this, um, all this mess, then so does contemporary America. So I, I guess I'm interested in how even these 
texts by and for elites give us at least some awareness, not just of the fishes in the psychology or the sociology of the elite, but also in the people that we're not getting at the center of the of the camera shot most of the time. A part of what I, I was interested in showing about the Odyssey was that it isn't just Odysseus's story, that it does, it's not that we have the real life diaries of, of any archaic slaves, but it does have slave characters and it does show us this is the cost to them of the maintenance of the elite household. We have that little wonderful little glimpse of the um, the weakest slave woman grinding the grain for the elite household who's praying for a different master to come back. But it also seems clear that the elite master who's listening, he doesn't care about her needs. You know, he, he, But the poem shows us that her needs hurt. The literary evidence that we have shows more of the camera shot than you might think if you're just going in there thinking, I'm only going to focus on the elite character. I think there are sort of particular... Um, questions specifically in the Odyssey about how do we treat people who are different from us and do we have a a model for what to do if people come to your door and they're destitute what kinds of ethics are there in relation to people who might be in need of your help or also what kind of ethics do you have when when you meet people who are not necessarily in need of your help but just are different from you do you then have to be hostile to them or in order to inhabit your own sense of belonging. One thing is that I've been emphasizing is the the need not to think that if you're in a privileged position that's because you're a better person or that being immune from circumstance means ethical value. I think some forms of xenophobia and racism come from an idea that I'm privileged and I'm white and or I'm privileged and I'm living in this better country and the people from the shitholes that's because they're shithole people and there's something worse about those those human beings and their circumstances somehow define them as individuals the idea that um, if you failed to to rise to the top then that must be your fault if people aren't privileged or are less privileged then that's their own fault and it's because of the stupid choices they've made I think the Odyssey is a, is a useful text to think about the the lies about the extent to which people are in control or not in control of their own life circumstances. That we have both, for instance, this idea that um, if you're Odysseus, then you can be in control and you can erase time. 20 years didn't happen. Um, he's just as young as he ever was. But then it's also the case that, um, for instance, Eumaeus is depicted as somebody who came from a noble household. He's a noble person. And yet he got trafficked into slavery. And here he is being a slave. He's still supposedly very noble. And the, the text is sort of figuring this is the way the way to be a noble slave is, in fact, to be an elite person who's been who, who's been brought low by circumstance. And then there's there's also the sort of juxtaposition of um, Odysseus's claim to be immune from time and circumstance with Penelope's lack of um, immunity to time and circumstance and the pressures of her sexual harassers. Such that I, th I think it's a poem which in itself is sort of grappling with, is it really your own fault if you don't get home? And I think the, the fact that it's figured as this could only possibly happen against all odds if you have the most powerful goddess available on your side. That's a way of saying, for most people, it's not going to happen. Most people don't get home. Most people don't get to be who they wanted to be, be in their place, be with their loved ones in this poem. And so it's sort of representing how rare it is to be able to do that and how it takes enormous amounts of luck and divine help for it ever to happen. Mm -hmm.
Mirror of Antiquity is produced by me, Curtis Dozier, and Lucy Rosenthal, with the support of the Vassar College Department of Greek and Roman Studies and Academic Computing Services. Special thanks on this episode to Allison Sugino. Baynard Bailey is our recording engineer, and Emma Schulte designed our logo. If this is the first episode of The Mirror of Antiquity you've listened to, please check out our webpage, mirrorofantiquity.com, where you can find many more conversations with classical scholars about how their research informs their understanding of the contemporary world and their own lives. It was a thrill to have Emily Wilson on the show, but this episode is also bittersweet because it's the last one that Lucy Rosenthal will be producing. She graduated from Vassar this spring and is off to other great adventures. She's been with the show almost since the very beginning, cutting tape, choosing the music, advising me on the content, really doing everything to make the show a success. You'll just have to believe me when I say that anything we've done that sounds good, it's probably Lucy's work. And if anything in the future sounds good, it's because I learned from her. Lucy, like Emily Wilson said, Life is unpredictable, and the ideal life is a fantasy. But even so, I know you have a bright future in the creative world, and I wish you all the best. As for The Mirror of Antiquity, we have a bunch of episodes in the pipeline, so stay tuned. Thanks a lot for listening.